You're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service. Welcome to the reading of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald. This is the edition of Sunday, February 12th, being read on Monday, the 13th. Support for this reading comes from the Dupaco R.W. Hafer Foundation. We're Helen and Myra, and here is our first story. Avello flight still on standby in Dubuque. Airport officials await security plan approval one month after service was set to begin. One month after commercial air carrier was scheduled to start flying out of Dubuque Regional Airport, officials still cannot say when that service will begin. Airport Director Todd Dalzing said he still is working to secure approval from the Transportation Security Administration of the airport's submitted complete security plan. The plan is required for the airport before Avalo airports can begin flying from Dubuque. Dubuque Regional Airport currently operates with airport currently operates with a supporting security program under the TSA, which is required for airports that offer flights that hold 60 or fewer passengers. With the arrival of Evalo, it will operate Boeing 737 aircraft that can hold as many as 189 passengers. The airport now is required to have an approved complete security plan. Dalzing said Friday that the airport submitted its complete security plan for review to the TSA on December 18th, less than a month before Evalo planned a debut flight on January 11th. However, Dalzing said he started working with the agency in late October creating the plan, and based on his discussions with TSA officials, he believed the plan would be approved in time for Avalos planned flights. We are working together with the TSA with the intent to get a plan approved and start service, Dalzing said. We were working together under the impression that we would get a plan approved on time. Dalzing said some progress has been made in getting the approximately 200-page plan approved. A transportation security inspector signed off on the plan last week, but Dawsing said it still must go through three more review phases by other TSA officials before it can be implemented. Jessica Mayo, a regional spokesperson for the TSA, stated in an email that the federal agency does not have an estimated time for when Dubuque security plan might be approved and that there is no average time for how long it takes a plan to be improved. TSA takes its rule in aviation security seriously and the agency appreciates close collaboration with airports and the airlines regarding their security plans, Mayo stated in an email. In this case, TSA continues to support Dubuque Regional Airport officials in its efforts to implement a plan that will have significant economic impact for that region. Molly Grover is the president and CEO of the Dubuque Area Chamber of Commerce, which leads an air service task force formed to attract new airlines to the community. She said she is not concerned about how Evelo's delayed flight service from Dubuque will be perceived by other airlines, and she added that the approval of the security plan 
will make Dubuque Regional Airport a more attractive prospect for air carriers. Having that security program is a huge advantage and selling factor for our community, she said. We are making sure we are meeting the security and safety standards and we have not heard any concerns. Officials have sought the return of the commercial air service to Dubuque since American Airlines ceased its commercial operations out of the airport in September. Dalsing said discussions with Avalo Airlines have uh, about coming to Dubuque began in March and proceeded throughout the summer. By October, airport officials and the airline had secured an agreement, and in early November, officials announced that Evalo would uh, provide um, flights between Dubuque and Orlando. Dalsing said the airport was informed on January 3rd by the TSA that its submitted security plan would not be approved in time for Evalo's planned January 11th flight and would need to be resubmitted with changes. Airport officials since have resubmitted their plan for approval. In the meantime, Evalo has operated its scheduled Dubuque flights out of Eastern Iowa Airport in Cedar Rapids. Impacted customers who have booked through February were given $100 in Avalo travel fund credit and also were allowed to reschedule their flights with no charge in fare or cancel for a full refund. When reached by the Telegraph Herald on Friday, Courtney Goff, a communications manager for Avalo Airlines, stated in an email that the airline is still committed to providing air service to Dubuque. Once it is approved and ready, we'll be ready almost immediately to fly, Goff stated. We know it's frustrating for those who have had to travel to Eastern Iowa Airport instead of Dubuque Regional Airport. So once the airport is approved, we'll be ready. Area residents feel the sting of medical debt. Minorities, lower income Americans most affected. One day in October 2021, Bobby Rooney took her three children shopping in Dubuque. At some point, she split them off, 12-year-old Cherish Sanders and youngest three-year-old Gemini Sanders, and was shopping with her middle daughter when she heard crying a few aisles over. Gosh, that sounds like my daughter, Rooney recalled, thinking. She was right. While Cherish was struggling to sit Gemini in a shopping cart, the little girl had wiggled out of her sister's grasp and fallen headfirst onto the concrete floor. The family rushed out of the store to their vehicle. As Rooney tried to put Gemini into her car seat, the three-year-old's whole body seized up, stiff as a board, and she began crying hysterically. They raced to the emergency room at Unity Point Health Finley Hospital. After conducting CT scans, the doctors told Rooney that her daughter had suffered an extra-axial hematoma, bleeding within the skull but outside the brain tissue itself, and would have to go to University Iowa Stead Family Children's Hospital for further treatment. Rooney and Gemini went by ambulance to Iowa City. Rooney hugged her youngest daughter tightly and told her that God would make everything okay. In Iowa City, doctors ran more tests and confirmed the results of the CT scan. Gemini spent the next 13 days under observation in the hospital before being discharged. Two months later, Rooney started receiving bills from the visit. With the TC scan at Finley, the ambulance ride to Iowa City, and the two weeks in the hospital, her daughter's medical costs totaled around $250,000.
Rooney had insurance as a full-time machinist, though both Finley and the Children's Hospital were out of network, and support staff in Iowa City signed her up for a Medicaid program that would help cover her costs. So she was spared a quarter million dollar debt. But she was still charged more than $10,000, which she expects to be paying off for most of the next decade in $50 increments, all she can afford as a single mother of three. Millions of Americans incur medical debt every year, with debt disproportionately concentrated among lower-income Americans, the uninsured, and ethnic minorities. February 2022 data collected from the Major Credit Bureau for Urban Institute's Debt in America tracker found 13% of adults had medical debt in collections, including 6% of residents in Dubuque County. While federal law requires many hospitals to offer financial assistance and debt forgiveness, and many charitable organizations work to offer debt relief, many people still find themselves on the hook for thousands of dollars in medical expenses, often after a single hospital visit. In Dubuque, Marshallese and Guatemalan immigrants are among the largest groups to be uninsured, with only recent changes in federal law opening the door for Marshallese community members to access Medicaid. Guatemalan migrants, on the other hand, are more likely to lack legal permanent residency or be in the country illegally, which can exclude them from most public and private insurance. People incur medical debt when they receive bills they cannot afford to pay from hospitals, private practice, and other health care providers, and have a balance to a provider or subsequently a collections agency. Research from 2019 by the Kaiser Family Foundation and Peterson Henner on Healthcare found a larger portion of households that make less than 400% of the federal poverty line had more than $250 in medical debt. Minority groups, particularly black people, had higher rates than others, as did residents of rural areas and people with disabilities. Uninsured people also were more likely to have higher rates of significant medical debt. Medical debts recounted for more than half of all debt in collections that had appeared on consumer credit records in 2020, with the balances totaling up to $140 billion. It can also ironically indirectly put people at risk of worse health. Adults with medical debt might experience difficulty paying for food, housing, and other basic needs, and are more likely to delay or forego needed health care because of the cost. About one in seven patients with past due bills have been turned away by medical providers as well. The added stress can lead to mental and physical problems as well. Rooney sank into depression after Gemini's accident, parsing through events of the day and asking what she could have done differently. She spent more and more time lying in bed to the point that her kids started coming into her room to check on mom. It didn't help that her daughter had been visibly changed by her brain injury. Gemini abandoned old habits, like checking the mailbox every time the family returned to their apartment. She stopped talking and started walking on her tiptoes, made odd noises, and adopted other nervous tics. As a mom, you try to prevent this stuff from happening, Rooney said, 
and having them running through your head this whole nine yards you see how she was how different it just got at times she used up her paid leave and missed work taking Gemini to follow-up appointments in Iowa City the family fell behind on rent and less than two months later just before Christmas she and her children were evicted from her apartment Rooney lost her job shortly after that Many area hospitals are required by law to offer financial support, also known as charity care, to lower-income individuals. Under the Affordable Care Act, hospitals with nonprofit status, which includes Mercy One and Unity Point Systems, are required to establish written financial assistance policy that must apply to all emergency and medically necessary care. But there's often three or four separate bills that RRS Steward of Dubuque for Refugee Children who helps Guatemalans navigate the medical system. There's a hospital bill. There's a physician's bill. There's the radiology bill. And even if the hospital forgives the bill, the physician may not forgive that bill. Both Dubuque's Emergency Physicians and Paramount Ambulance, a private service operating in Dubuque, offer payment plans for outstanding debt as well as prompt payment discounts for patients who pay off their debt quickly. Finally, in July, Bobby Rooney got a new job as a machinist at A.Y. McDonald. She started receiving insurance through the company in January. After she and her family spent a couple of months couch surfing and sleeping in their car, Rooney was able to put a down payment on a mobile home in Bellevue, Iowa, using her income tax refund. A few weeks ago, the family hit another milestone. Rooney stopped by a grocery store and bought $250 worth of groceries. Her kids, she said, couldn't, were astounded. They remain regulars at a local church's free weeknight meals. One recent night, the family waited for supper in the church basement. Gemini slid out of her chair and squirmed up against her mother. Eight months after the accident, doctors in Iowa City said Rooney is told Rini that Gemini's brain injury finally had healed. She's expected to begin having seizures as she gets older, however, as a result of her injury. Dubuque students recognized for efforts to combat hunger. Wallard Sr. helped to operate a new program taking leftover produce to Dubuque Food Pantry. A summer class on agricultural research in 2021 started Lila Takas, 18, down the path to finding her passion for food recovery work. I had this thought that agriculture is just farming, but it's so much more than that, like agribusiness and taking care of the environment around you, said senior at Wallard Catholic High School in Dubuque. A year later, Takas helped operate a new program taking leftover Dubuque Farmers Market produce to Dubuque Food Pantry. Her work led her to be recognized recently as a 2023 recipient of Youth Virtues, Valor, and Vision Award from the National Catholic Educational Association. A press release states, She's very innovative, very driven, very intrinsically motivated, and wants to do good things for the community, said Wallard science teacher Corwin Shriver, who taught the agricultural research class. I can think, can't think of a student who deserves this award more. In addition to taking the class, 
Tekas worked at Dubuque Farmer's Market in summer 2021. At the end of the market, sometimes um, um, produce was thrown away. In spring of 2022, Tekas participated in the New York Times Profile Contest as part of an assignment for her newspaper class. She was one of 10 finalists, and her piece on the local activist Lynn Stutton's work in urban agriculture was published in the New York Times. Her interview with Sutton led Takas to recall her concerns about food waste at the farmer's market. She started researching food recovery programs, which bloomed into an internship with Shriver in the summer and fall of 2022. Takas connected with Dubuque Food Pantry Executive Director Teresa Caldwell, who recently had started a program taking leftover produce from the market to the pantry. I'd been doing it by myself, and it got to the point where it was too big, Caldwell said. Lila gave me a call and brought in a crew of volunteers, and it really was great because I could be at the pantry and ready to receive the produce as soon as they brought it in. From the end of July through October, Takas recruited, organized, and held, led volunteers to pick up produce on Saturdays, collecting more than 2,500 pounds of food. We were able to create this cycle of sustainability and limit food waste while also helping farmers and people that go to the food pantry for necessities, Taka said. Dubuque Main Street event and resource specialist Laura Bergens said farmers take official, farmers market officials wanted to launch such a program for years and individual vendors sometimes tried to donate leftover food, but timing and logistics made it difficult. With them coming in right to market and picking it up, it was just phenomenal because the people get the food and it doesn't go to waste, she said. Take Us Now is working with City of Dubuque staff and pantry officials to expand the program to include night and winter markets and to compensate vendors for leftover food that is taken. She also now is a member of the Dubuque County Food Policy Council. Caldwell described Take Us as an eager volunteer with a strong sense of character and integrity. Enthusiasm makes someone sign up to volunteer, but character makes you show up, and that's what Lila and her group are doing, she said. Knights of Columbus hold auction, plan for future. The Dubuque Catholic Service Organization is planning for the future after selling its longtime home. Knights of Columbus Council 510 recently launched an online auction of items from Joliet Event Center, 781 Locust Street, where the council has hosted events for more than a century. The building is being sold to Cottingham and Butler, which plans to demolish it and construct a daycare center. The question is out there of who are the Knights without their building, when in fact our home is in Jesus Christ. And this does not affect the existence of Council 510, said Grand Knight Jim Sigworth. Yes, we're selling the building, but we have a vision and a direction, and there's excitement building around that. Sigur said the Knights purchased the building in 1908 and completed renovation in 1912. Over the decades, the event center has housed dances and anniversary celebrations, Christmas and Easter parties, fish fries, and more. It became a situation where it just made good financial sense to sell it, Burkett said. From the heartstrings, it was a little more difficult because there's a lot of great memories there, not only for our members, but for the community as a whole. 
Cottingham and Butler officials signed a letter of intent to purchase the property, subject to determining whether the building could be demolished. Initially, Dubuque's Historic Preservation Commission denied the request, but City Council members in November voted to remove the city block in which the building is located from the Historic Conservation District, paving the way for the demolition. Segura said the sale will close at the end of February. Members of the Knights of Columbus spent several recent Saturdays at the events center gathering items and preparing them for the auction, which opened last week. Council 510 will now be aligned with three parishes, Holy Spirit Pastorate, which includes Holy Ghost, Holy Trinity, and Sacred Heart Churches, Church Nativity, and Cathedral of St. Raphael St. Patrick. The Council will also have an office at Nativity and will rotate its meetings and events among the three parishes. Members plan to hold the group's popular Lenten fish fries this year at Holy Ghost Church. They also hope to relaunch Bingo Nights at Holy Ghost, which were held weekly at the Joliet Event Center prior to the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm excited that without the expense from running a building, we will be able to dedicate more of our volunteer efforts and profits from our events directly to charities, and I think that can be a motivation for men to be involved, Sigra said. Andrew Butler, executive chair of Cottingham and Butler, said Friday that the company is in the early phase of its design work to prepare the demolition of Joliet Event Center later this year. Our hope would be to begin construction early to midsummer of this year and then have the daycare facility completed by mid to late summer of 2024, he said, noting that the facility will have space for about 180 children. Uh, a Night to Shine offers accessible event to remember. Hope Church provides prom-like experience for people with disabilities. With a cheering crowd on all sides, guests choose a variety of ways to make their grand entrances Friday night at the Grand River Center. Some chose to dance down the red carpet or strike a dramatic pose, while others opted to tip their hats and offer a simple spin. Most wore huge smiles and waved at their friends and family in the crowd. Dressed to the nines, many had one thought in their mind, dancing. I'm going to dance all night long, said guest Jenny Dalton, showing off a couple of her, sign her signature moves. She just left the dance's complimentary shoe shine and was gearing up to hit the dance floor with her buddy, Dakota Scott. Dalton was one of nearly 200 guests from the Tri-States to attend the Night to Shine Promenade put on Friday at the Dubuque Event Center by Hope Church. The event provides people with disabilities a prom-like experience, which for some attendees would otherwise be inaccessible. Friday marked the second time Hope Church was held the event, the first being in 2018. Hope Church Communications Director Bethany Lois said the event was moved to the Grand River Center this year to allow room for more guests. We were really excited to be doing it again, and we didn't want to have to say no to anybody who wanted to participate, Lois said. We very much value every person in our community, and we feel as though people with special needs are at the top of the list to show that we care about and want to elevate them. The church was one of more than 600 organizations worldwide to host Night to Shine on Friday, sponsored by the Tim Tebow Foundation. The Christian-affiliated nonprofit organization was founded by the former football quarterback, 
People ages 14 to 84 attended the Dubuque event at no cost to the guests. Following their red carpet entrances, attendees could visit a hair and makeup salon, receive shoe shines, and have their photos taken. Guest Lakin Merrifield laughed as a volunteer sprayed cosmetic glitter in her hair. She had seen a friend in line for the photo booth with a sparkling updo, and she knew immediately she needed to stop at the hair and makeup station for the same treatment. I'm excited for the dancing, Merrifield said, swimming her pale yellow, yellow dress around herself and seeing my friends. I'm just so excited that they're putting on the night to shine for us. The dance floor remained fairly empty at the start of the event as guests made their way between stations or staked out a good spot to sit, but it started to fill up as Whitney Houston's I Want to Dance with Somebody flowed from the speakers, and even more people jumped in when Footloose followed. Shella's Reese and her buddy Deanna Jackson watched the dancers from a nearby dinner table. Reese said she was excited to dance, but she was waiting for the right song to get started. Jackson was similarly excited for the experience, adding that she had been a buddy in 2018, too, and enjoyed her time immensely. On Friday, Reese and Jackson were quick to hit up the hair and makeup station, the corsage pickup, and the photo booth before taking a break. We even took pictures together earlier because Chalice said she wanted to she looked like twins since they both were wearing our black dresses tonight, Jackson said. Each guest was named queen or king of the dance at the end of the event and was given a crown to commemorate the occasion. As the night wound down, many guests left the way they came, smiling. All our guests were made in the image of God, and we want them to know that they are kings and queens in God's kingdom, said Director Elementary Minister's uh, Deanna Wrightcraft. So we want to remind them, if you have not ever heard it or forgotten it, that they are important to us and important to God. We now turn briefly to the opinion section of today's paper and the letters to the editor. Let process play out on speed cameras. Much ado about very little. It's perfectly beginning of the Iowa legislature section session with vouchers on the way, but private schools still don't have the rules established. The bill was priority number one for Governor Kim Reynolds, as well as the Republicans in the legislature, but the bill does not create two equal systems. If public funds are used, then the same Department of Education standards should be used and private schools should be required to maintain public records, be audited annually, use standardized curriculum, adopt a state-approved vocational and life skills program, provide services for students with disabilities, and not wait until the third year, as the governor desires, to have funds available for every Iowa family. In addition, Iowa needs to consider that funding for public schools has fallen short for years. It is time to realize that 2% or 3% funding is not sufficient and that the 8.7% Social Security inflation rate is needed. The Student First Act should take care of two equal school systems in the state of Iowa. Behavior lacks civility. 
I saw our Iowa Representative Ashley Henson booing during the State of the Union speech. Apparently, bad behavior trumps common civility in the GOP Congress. Classy lady and excellent role model. Dwellers Struggling in Mobile Home Park by Carla Croffel, Garnavillo Drive, Dubuque. A tenant moves to Table Mound Home Park in 1989 and lot rent is $85 a month and that includes water, sewage, and garbage. There were few rent increases in those years. When we received our letter stating we were bought out, lot rent was $270 a month. In June 2017, we received a letter stating that rent would be going up $40. At a meeting in the fall of that year stating we would be getting charged for water, sewage, and garbage. In June of 2018, we received a letter stating rent would be going up $20. June 2019 received a notice going up $35. December 2021 notice going up $45. November 2022 increased notice $35. During this time, nothing has been done to justify this big of a rent increase. This is a rental increase of $180 in five years and residents paying between $45 and $65 a month for water, sewage, and garbage. I know a resident who is only receiving a little over $1,000 a month in Social Security. After you pay rent and other bills, there is nothing left. Remember, we are only renting the land our home is sits on. We maintain our homes. Mobile homes were affordable homes for a lot of our elderly and disabled, and now they are being forced out of their homes by big corporations, and the money they collect does not even stay in the state. This isn't a red or blue issue. This is a people issue. You are listening to the Dubuque Telegraph Herald on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped. Your readers are Helen and Myra. If you have any comment on this or any IRIS program, please call 243-6833 or toll-free at 877-404-4747. And don't forget, this and many other IRIS programs are available from our website at iowaradioreading.org. Now we return to the Telegraph Herald and to today's obituaries. Charles E. Stoltz With sorrow, we announce the death of Charles Chuck Edward Stoltz, 86, of Dubuque, Iowa, in Scottsdale, Arizona. He passed away on Friday, February 10, 2023. Born on July 31, 1936, Chuck was the youngest son of Edward and Bertha Klingenberg Stoltz. He had three older brothers, Elmer, Donald, and Bert, all World War II veterans. Like his brothers, Chuck felt it was important to serve his country. He joined the U.S. Marine Corps and spent two years working up the ranks to tank battalion. After his service, Chuck earned a bachelor degree from the University of Dubuque and a master's degree from the University of Iowa. He also attended Northwestern University's Executive Development Program. In 1998, he was honored with the degree Honor of Doctor of Humane Letters Honors from the University of Dubuque. In the fall of 1982, as president and chairman of the Dubuque Packing Company, Stoltz sold the Dubuque plant and its fleur-de-lis trademark to a group led by R.H. Wallard. The packing plant then began operations as FDL Foods Incorporated. Chuck was completely devoted to his family, especially during the years after his retirement. Chuck and his wife met his wife Jean in 1964, and they wed just a few months later. 
They were married for 45 years until her passing in 2009. Chuck and Jean lived primarily in Dubuque area and later as Arizona as well. During the years, Chuck served many corporate, educational, and charitable boards in Dubuque and Omaha, including American Trust and Savings Bank, Dubuque Bank and Trust, Boy Scouts of Northeast Iowa, Dubuque Boys Club, Finley Hospital, and the Wallard Foundation. Chuck was preceded in death by his wife, Jean. He is survived by his daughter, Jennifer of Fort Pox, Wisconsin, his three sons, Michael of Northbrook, Illinois, John of Wilmette, and Charles of Camas, Washington, and his grandchildren. The funeral will be a private ceremony with close family members present. Memorial service will be held at a later date. Jacqueline R. Entringer. Jacqueline Jackie Entringer, 85, of Dubuque, passed away at 5 a.m. on Tuesday, February 7, 2023, at Stonehill Care Center, surrounded by her loving family. To honor Jackie's life, family and friends may visit from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Friday, February 17th at the Bear Funeral Home. Funeral services will be held at 1 p.m. on Friday at the funeral home with Deacon John Stearman officiating following the cremation burial will be at Linwood ceremony. Jackie was born on August 23, 1937 in Dubuque, Iowa, daughter of Charles and Gladys Sauville uh, Manadieu. Jackie was a proud, lifelong Dubuqueer who attended Prescott and Jefferson School. She was united in marriage to Donald Fath in October 15, 1954 in Dubuque. They later went their separate ways and she would marry Carl Ettringer in August 12, 1976. Sadly, Carl passed away on May 27, 2001. A few years later, Jackie would find love again with uh, Jack Freeberger, but he would pass away on September 21, 2007, before they had a chance to wed. Jack was a hard worker. She bartended at several establishments in the tri-state area and worked at several restaurants. She, those who are left to cherish Jackie's memory include her children, 11 grandchildren, 18 grand, great-grandchildren, and two great-great-grandchildren. Jackie was preceded in death by her parents, her husband, Carl Ettringer, a, a granddaughter, Carrie Rundy, a great-grandson, Jason Lehman, a daughter-in-law, two sisters, two sisters-in-law, her brothers-in-law, and Ray Entringer and even Entringer and her fiance Jack Freeberger. In lieu of flowers, the family thankfully uh, would receive your support through greeting cards and memorials in her memory. Kenneth Voigt, Kenneth Voigt, 71, of Dubuque, died Wednesday, February 8th. Private services will be held. Tri State Cremation Service, East Dubuque, is assisting the family. Uh, Elaine Wyke, Elaine uh, Wyke, 92 of Dubuque, died on Saturday, February 11, 2023. Visitation will be held from 4 to 5 Thursday, February 16th at Leonard Funerary Home and Crematory on Rockdale Road, where services will follow. 
and Lonnie Burns, Lonnie E. Burns Jr., 31, of Dubuque, died on Tuesday, February 7, 2023. Visitation will be held from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. Tuesday, February 14th, at Leonard Funeral Home and Crematory on Rockdale Road, where a celebration of life will follow. Albert J. Roth. Albert J. Roth, 90, of Dubuque, died Tuesday, February 7th, at his home with his family by his side. A celebration of life will be held from 12 o'clock noon until 1.30 on Friday, February 17th at Hoffman Schneider and Kitchell Fun Funeral Home and Crematory. The family invites you to show your team spirit by wearing Cubs or Hawkeyes attire to his celebration. Al was born April 12, 1932 in Bellevue, Ohio, the son of Otto and Anna Roth. On J June 24, 1961, he married the love of his life, Patricia Demkier, at St. Anthony's Catholic Church in Dubuque. Al had a long career as an educator at Marshall Elementary School, teaching generations of families. He and Pat also owned Roth Ceramics, creating beautiful ceramics pieces sold at many local locations. When they weren't working, they enjoyed their time together at the casinos and dog track. Instead of fame or fortune, Al's treasure was his family. He and Pat raised a family of five children with love and pride. He grew bountiful vegetable gardens and beautiful flowers, enjoyed caring for his lawn, and loved making applesauce with his apples every fall. Surviving include his wife of nearly 62 years, Patricia Roth of Dubuque, three children, Linda C. of Dubuque, Kevin Roth of Coralville, and Brian Roth of Iowa City, daughter-in-law Bambi Roth of Dubuque, and nine grandchildren. He was preceded in death by his parents, two children, David Roth and Karen Johnson, and his 12 siblings. In lieu of flowers, Memorial Fund has been established. Family extends a special thank you to Hospice of Dubuque. Maynard L. McVeigh. Maynard McVeigh, 89, of Dubuque, died Monday, February 6th at Stonehill Care Center in Dubuque. Visitation will be from 4 p.m. until 7 p.m. on Friday, February 17th at Hoffman, Schneider, and Kitchen Funeral Home and Crematory. The Mass of Christian Burial for Maynard will be 10 a.m. Saturday, February 18th uh, at Holy Spirit Parish Sacred Heart Catholic Church with Father Stephen Garner as celebrant. Burial will be in Mount Calvary Cemetery in Dubuque with full military honors. Maynard was born on December 24, 1933, in Montfort, Wisconsin, son of Everett and Helen Winters McVeigh. On July 14, 1956, he married Shirley Sutter at St. Raphael Cathedral in Dubuque. She preceded him in death in 2015. Maynard served in the United States Army as a medic. He worked for the Dubuque Packing Company and later as a medical associate. Maynard was a member of Holy Spirit Parish, Sacred Heart Catholic Church in Dubuque. He was an avid Green Bay Packers and Atlanta Braves fan. He also enjoyed beekeeping and country music. Survivors include four children, four grandchildren, and six siblings. Besides his wife, Maynard was preceded in death by his parents, a sister, and a brother. Hoffman, Schneider, and Kitchen Funeral Home and Crematory is in care of the arrangements. Shirley A. Babka. Shirley A. Babka, 88, was called home peacefully on Wednesday, February 8th at Bethany Home in Dubuque. Visitation will be held on Monday, February 13th 
from noon to 1.45 p.m. at Westminster Presbyterian Church, University Avenue, Dubuque. Funeral services will immediately follow at 2 p.m. at the church. Burial will be in Linwood Cemetery. Shirley was born on January 15, 1935, the only child to Cecil and Pearl Steech of Des Moines, Iowa. They moved to Dubuque when she was a child. She attended Dubuque Senior High School and married her high school sweetheart, James Miller, on July 17, 1952. Had three sons and lost Jim suddenly at age 23 in 1958. She met her second husband, David Stover, as his blind date emergency substitute, and they were married on October 15, 1960. David adopted her three sons, and together they had three daughters. Shirley lost her Dave in the Kansas City, Missouri Hyatt Regency Hotel disaster in 1981. Finally, a mutual acquaintance brought Edward Babka into her life, and they were married on April 30, 1983, becoming a stepmother to his two children, who were adults. He passed away in 2016, living a long and full life. She served as a volunteer and board member for many organizations, including Granby United Methodist Church, Westminster Presbyterian, Chapter MPPEO, Eastern Star, Finley Hospital, Sunshine Circle, Mount Pleasant Home, Linwood Cemetery, and the Dubuque Symphony. She lived a private yet adventurous life by camping around the United States and traveling around the world. She is survived by her sons Douglas Stover of Dubuque, Gregory Stover of Marion, Todd Stover of Canyon Lake, and daughter Kimberly Wares of Durango, Kara Stover Burris of Arvada, and Kristen Griffin of Duckyville, her stepdaughter Nancy Babka of Beverly Hills, and stepson Frank Babka of Minnetonka, Minnesota. She is also survived by over 35 grandchildren and great-grandchildren. She was preceded in death by her parents, Cecil and Pearl Steech, her husbands, James Miller, David Stover, and Edward Babka. She was also preceded in death by her great-grandson, R.A. Frost. Family would like to give special thank you to Bethany Home for the past seven years of care, Hospice of Dubuque, Westminster Presbyterian Church, and Eaglehoff, Seeger, and Casper Funeral Homes. In lieu of flowers, please make a donation in your favorite charity in memory of Shirley. Pamela M. Bennett. The family of Pamela M. Bennett of Dubuque is saddened to announce her passing on Tuesday, February 7th uh, at the age of 63. There will be a celebration of Pam's life for family and friends on Tuesday, February 14th from 11 to 2 at the Dubuque Pizza Ranch. Pam, daughter of Jean and Madonna Stephen Kopp, was born on May 9, 1959, in Dubuque, Iowa. After graduating from Hempstead High School, she moved out west and had a successful sales career. She returned to Dubuque in 1988 and met her partner for life in Terry Healy. The two have been together ever since. Pam has two daughters, Shannon and Sherry, who are the light of her life. Pam will be forever remembered for her contagious smile that could light up a room and her ability to make conversation with just about anyone. She was very creative and loved making jewelry, crafting, and taking on DIY projects. As a two-time cancer survivor, Pam was a fighter who always faced her health challenges head-on. We are truly heartbroken losing Pam, but have peace knowing that she is no longer suffering. Left to cherish Pam's memory include her partner of 35 years, Terry Healy, 
two daughters, Shannon Bennett, New Hampton, Iowa, Sherry Healy, Belmont, California. Her granddaughters, Caitlin and Ashley Gross, her siblings, Debbie uh, and uh, Steve, uh, uh, Marianne Kopp of Arizona. Pam was preceded in death by her parents and two brothers, Danny and Jeff Kopp. Pam, Pam's family would like to thank her entire medical team, especially Dr. Angela Kelly, for all her care and support throughout Pam's health journey. They would also like to thank the Dubuque Police Department and Bear Funeral Home for their professionalism and kindness. Also, a big heartfelt thank you for the family and friends, Liz and Adam Martin, for their love and support. Joan M. Bauman Appleton. Joan M. Bauman, 90, of Appleton, Wisconsin, previously from Hazel Green in Kerrville, Texas, passed away Saturday, February 4th, after a long illness. A private service is planned with immediate family at a later date with burial in Mount Calvary Cemetery in Dubuque. Joan was born September 7, 1933, in Dodgeville, the daughter of Joan and Edward Rohowitz. She attended and graduated from Mercy School of Nursing with an RN degree, and after graduation moved to Milwaukee and attended Marquette University to pursue MSN. Joan met Donald Bauman while in Dubuque, and they were married in Dodgeville on August 8, 1953. She then followed him to Long Beach and Iowa City, where Donald moved to have medical training. They moved to Dubuque then, where Donald practiced medicine and Joan raised six children. Joan spent nine years consistently giving her time, skill, and care to the many volunteer organizations in Dubuque, including Hospice, Stonehill Care Center, Legion of Mary, her parish council, and Girl Scouts. She often put her nursing skills to use in crisis. No job seemed too big or too small. She was honored at the 12th Annual Governor's Volunteer Award in 1992 by then-Governor Terry Branstead. Survivors include her five children, Grant Baum of Appleton, Joan Primitzing of Dubuque, Jane Baum of New Richmond, Wisconsin, Scott Bauman of Prescott, and Mike Bauman of Lincoln, Nebraska. Nine grandchildren and six great-grandchildren. Brothers Paul Banowitz of St. Paul, Minnesota. Joan was preceded in death by her oldest son, Mark. Family would like to thank the wonderful staff at Hartwood Senior Living for the caring and love of the hospice nurses also. Mary Josephine Kerwin. Mary Jo Kerwin passed away at home in Palos Verdes, Pensacola, California on January 26 from COVID complications. Her immune system was weakened by five years of intermittent breast cancer treatments. She enjoyed her close-knit family, many friends, long legal career, reading, traveling, helping others through community support groups, cats, and stuffed animals. Born 80 years ago in Cuba City, Wisconsin on July 22, 1942, to C.W. Bill Kerwin and Theta Hillary Kerwin, she grew up on their family Herford farm in Buncombe, Benton Township, Wisconsin, with her younger siblings Randy, Connie, Cian, and Christy. She was active in 4-H, showed beef cattle in at the local Lafayette County Fair having the reserve grand champion beef steer one year and winning the champion beef showmanship award too. Mary Jo attended Buncombe School, a rural one-room schoolhouse 
through eighth grade and then attended Benton High School where she graduated valedictorian in May of 1960 and earned a National Merit Scholarship. She attended the University of Wisconsin-Madison where she was a member of the Delta Zeta sorority and an honors student graduating with a Bachelor of Science degree in 1964. Upon graduating for college, she worked in Connecticut and in California receiving a scholarship to UCLA Law School. While attending there, she also worked as a probation officer and dorm assistant. Then in, 2000, in 1971, she was only one of 30 women who graduated in her class of 300. After years of private practice, she joined the Los Angeles Attorney's uh, Office and there met a fellow lawyer, Colin Wing Chu. They were married in 1980. She is a loving nana, two grandsons, Donovan and Beckett. Mary Jo is survived by her loving husband, Colin, daughter, Tiffany, daughter, Nicole Hillary, and sons, Donovan and Beckett. Siblings, Randy, Connie, Christine, Keith, Beckon, Florence, George, Jeanette, Florence, and May, and loving uncle, nieces, and nephews all survive her. Her parents, Theta and Bill, and sister Sian, preceded her in death. There will be a celebration of life in Benton, Wisconsin, the afternoon of July 9th. Uh, at the Benton United Methodist Church. In lieu of flowers, consider donation to Mary Jo's memory to your favorite charity. Doran, Dorrance Hoftender. Dorrance Hoftender, 76, of Dubuque, died on Monday, February 6th. Arrangements are pending. Eggledorf, Siegert, and Casper Funeral Home and Crematorium Dubuque is assisting the family. Velda M. Schoenfeld. Velda Schoenfeld died Thursday, February 9th, the week before her 95th birthday, at the Galena Strauss Senior Care Community. Funeral service will be held at 11 a.m. Wednesday, February 15th, at Furlong Funeral Chapel in Galena. Friends may call at the Furlong Funeral Chapel from 4 to 7 p.m. Tuesday, February 14th. Burial will be in Greenwood Cemetery, Galena. She was born in Pearl City, Illinois, the eldest of eight children of William and Olga Kohler Hyde. After graduation from Stockton High School, she attended a special teacher training course and taught all eight grades from 1946 to 48 in rural Hanover, Oak Ridge School, and then Gibbs School. While boarding with the Flynn family, she met their handsome young cousin, and she and Ralph Schoenfeld were married on June 26, 1948, and moved to Galena. He preceded her in death in October of 1990. She served as a guide at the Belvedere House, among other things. She and Ralph were very active in the VFW, St. Matherns Lutheran Church, the Galena Golf Club. She was survived by her daughters, Sherry Maxwell of Clearwater Beach, Florida, and Joanne Curasaus of Libertyville, Illinois. Daughter-in-law, Joan Sheen Schoenfield of Galena. Two sisters, Joyce Keenan of Denver and Bonnie Anderson. Two nephews and foster sons, Rick and Jeff Hyde and their son Daniel, and a great-grandson. She was preceded in death by her parents, her husband, a son Randy in 2021, 
and two brothers, Galen and Sheldon Hyde, and three sisters, Linda Outson, Marilee Thomas, and Doris Bush. Jacqueline M. Steinke. Jacqueline Jackie Haram Steinke, uh, 56, of Dubuque, Iowa, was called to her home in heaven by her Lord Jesus on February 5th, 2023. Private family celebration of life service will be held at a later date. Leonard Funeral Home and Crematory on Rockdale Road is assisting the family. Jackie was born on July 21st, 1966 in Dubuque, Iowa, the daughter of Gary and Barbara Klein Haram. She graduated from Dubuque Senior High School and attended NICC Amos Bible School. She was formerly married to Kent Steinke. She worked at uh, worked for Wallert. She worked for Walmart as a cashier and also on the floor, along with working at Goodwill and McDonald's. She was a member of the Word of Life Church and she was an avid Chicago Cubs and Iowa Hawkeye fan. Jackie is survived by her parents, Gary and Barbara Harum, brothers Mike of Helena, Alabama, Scott Harum of McQuan, Wisconsin, and Terry Harum of Danford, Port, Iowa, along with many nieces and nephews. She is preceded in death by her sister Jody and a son in infancy, Lazarus. Memorials in Jackie's name may be given to Samaritan's Purse. The family wishes to thank Dubuque Fire, EMT, and police for their emergency care and concern for Jackie. Raymond F. Beshin. Raymond Beshin, 86, of Dubuque, passed away on February 10th. A private family service will be held at a later date. He was born March 10, 1937, in Lamont, son of Henry and Laura Hentges Beshin, and was united in marriage to Shirley Bowers in 1957 at St. Clement Church in Lancaster. He worked at John Deere and retired in 1990. He is survived by his wife Shirley, children Tom Beshin of Dubuque, Pam Mays of Casper, Rayanne Beshin of Aurora, Colorado, and Carla Like of Dubuque, seven grandchildren, 12 grandchildren, and three great-grandchildren. He is preceded in death by his parents, a daughter and a son-in-law, and a daughter-in-law Carol Beshin and brothers Melvin and Jim. Jessica Tyson K. Tyson of Phoenix. Jessica T. Tyson, 44, of Phoenix, Arizona, formerly of Bellevue, passed away unexpectedly on Tuesday, January 31st. Local arrangements entrusted with Hockman Meyer Funeral Home and Crematorium Service in Bellevue. Funeral Mass will be 10.30 Saturday, February 18th at St. Joseph's Catholic Church in Bellevue. Uh, Jessica was born February 3, 1978, the daughter of Jerry and Karen Junk Tyson. She graduated from Bellevue Public High School in 1996. She graduated from Loris College with a degree in education, and she taught at St. Mary's Catholic Grade School in East Dubuque before moving to Arizona. Her survivals include parents, Jerry and Karen Tyson, her brother Tyler, paternal grandparents, Rand Dorison, maternal grandmother, uh, baby Junk, uh, nieces and nephews, um, and several other relatives, uh, aunts and uncles, um, numerous extended relatives. Jessica was preceded in death by her brother Jeremy, maternal grandfather Dwayne Young, aunts Jane Young in infancy, Kathy Lombardi, a cousin Jaden Lombardi, and an uncle Tim Yonko. 
Raymond C. Schultz. Raymond Ray Schultz, 89, of Cuba City, died Friday, February 10th at St. Dominic's Villa, Cincinnati. Private family services will be held at Casey McNutt Funeral Home in Cuba City is uh, in the family. He was born in 1934 um, and married Barbara Hardy in 1955. Um, Barbara Furlong, uh, 73, of Dubuque, passed away February 7th. Uh, celebration of life will be had from 2 to 4 on Sunday, March 23rd at the uh, Village Cooperative in Asbury a Community Room on Grand Meadows, Meadows Asbury, Iowa. Um, uh, she, um, she is survived by her children, uh, Tim, uh, Aaron, and Shannon. Uh, grand, uh, grandchildren um, uh, and uh, by her siblings, siblings, siblings John, Sue, and Rob Unson and Chuck. Norman Drew of Platteville, age 87, passed away Thursday, January 26 at Lancaster Health Services. A celebration of life for Norman will be held at a later date. And Daniel Montilius, 46 of Dubuque died on Wednesday, February 8th. Prayer service will be held at Tri-State Cremation Center of East Dubuque is assisting the family. This brings us to the end of today's readings of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald for February 12th. We're your readers, Helen and Myra. The Telegraph Herald can be heard each weekday at 2 p.m. All programs heard on IRIS are intended solely for the blind and print handicapped. If you have any questions or comments on this or any IRIS program, please call our office toll-free at 877-404-4747. And thank you for listening.